If there was one thing that you would like to be perceived differently, maybe in the world of public venture capital, what would that be? I feel like the one thing is to really reevaluate this accredited investor status, because the way it currently stands, it's being almost there for rich people to get richer. What's been some of the more challenging aspects of building Victory Square Technologies? Yeah, man, we've had so many ups and downs. This entrepreneur entrepreneurship shit, you know, ain't for the faint of heart. What does it mean to you? What does this recognition mean to you? Um, you know, they're team awards. Like we're you know, building a company is the ultimate team sport. On today's podcast, we're joined by Shafin Tajani, founder and CEO of Victory Square Technologies. Shaf is a serial entrepreneur and investor with a focus on AI, VR, AR, blockchain, and health technology companies. At the age of 19, Shaf launched his first company from his door, a matchmaking service called iFlirts. And since then, he's gone on to launch over 40 startups in 21 different countries, employed over 350 people, and generated over a billion dollars in enterprise value. On top of all of his entrepreneurial work, Shaf has become one of Canada's leading advocates for venture philanthropy. Shaf and his team has donated 10,000 volunteer hours and helped raise more than $88 million in support of causes with the goal of ensuring that more children and youth reach their full potential. Shaf has received numerous awards, including Inc.'s 500 Fastest Growing Companies, the Prime Minister's Volunteer Award, EY's Technology Entrepreneur of the Year Award, and Canadian Angel Investor of the Year Award. Shaf, thanks so much for taking the time to talk today. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Awesome. And just before we kick things off, I got to say, our producer, Sean Farrell, he writes all of our introductions. And I was recording the one for you earlier. I wasn't aware of a lot of a lot of your achievements. And, you know, we've been working together and hanging out a bit over the last couple of months. And yeah, completely unaware. So congratulations. Thanks, man. Team effort. I'll definitely, though, need to get Sean to come and do my intro anytime I speak. So I like that hype, man. Hey, so... Your first journey into the world of entrepreneurship, I'd love to hear what inspired it. I know you started a company, iFlirts, at 19 years old, but where did this entrepreneurialism come from? Yeah, man, I think my journey started young. When I think back, there are probably two things that really stand out. One, I think just being brought up in an environment uh, surrounded by entrepreneurs. My family got refugee asylum in Canada uh, in the 70s. And I witnessed my uncles and my aunts and my dad and mom kind of tirelessly work when we were kids to make up enough money to start their own business. And I would spend my you know weekends, spring break, summer break, even after school sometimes at the store helping out. And so I was exposed to inventory management, sales, marketing, pricing, customer service, and being brought up in that environment. There were so many key learnings and things that I saw and learned that I even applied to my own kind of hustles in elementary and in, in high school. And then I think the second, you know, as a kid, and a lot of people could probably relate to this, when I'd want something, I would go to my parents and they would basically tell me, if you want something, you have to go and earn it or do chores. And I just remember, you know, kind of calculating how long it would have taken me based on what my parents were paying, which was pretty much slave labor, to be able to buy what I wanted. And it would have taken me months. So I realized early on that in order to control my own destiny, I needed to build my own things. And in that case specifically, I remember 
starting my own hostel to make enough money very quickly to buy what I wanted. And so to control my own destiny, build my own wealth, I think I always knew early on that this was, you know, building a company or, 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 or being an entrepreneur was something that I kind of in my destiny. Wow. It's so cool. And it sounds like, you know, you really give a lot of appreciation and gratitude to your parents' struggle and almost pay it forward in, in your work ethic today. And obviously with your philanthropy as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've heard Warren Buffett say that, you know, he won the ovarian lottery. You know, I almost feel kind of similar in that, you know, not only did I have the good fortune of growing up in Canada, safe society, you know, stable government, access to healthcare, good education, loving parents. We didn't necessarily have money, but, you know, I, did, I didn't feel, uh, you know, that love and support wasn't, wasn't there. And I feel so, so thankful and grateful that a lot of the, the success uh, I've had as a byproduct of A, you know, growing up in Canada and, and growing up to, you know, to the two parents that I, that I have. So I almost feel it's my duty and responsibility to, to kind of pay it forward, ties into a lot of our philanthropic stuff. But I think gratitude, you know, I feel so grateful not only for like being Canadian, being brought up here for my parents and even just for the, you know, the people and friends that I have kind of around me, which I think, you know, team effort, a lot of the, the success again is a byproduct of, you know, all of those different things. So. Victory Square Technologies has now got a portfolio of over 20 companies. When evaluating a company, what are the key indicators you look for to ensure that a company is set up for success? I think there are three key things uh, that we look for. The first is, you know, do we have a competitive advantage or does this business solve a pain point in our, our ecosystem? At Victory Square, we, we have this venture build model. Again, we only get involved in businesses that we have some sort of competitive advantage in. And then what we do is we roll up our sleeves and kind of play a role in that portfolio company as a co-founder. So the first thing I think is, do we have an advantage or does this business solve a pain point in our ecosystem. The second key thing I think is, you know, when we're looking for a business, we look globally. So we built up a network of, of 80 accelerators around the world that help us vet and identify some of the top entrepreneurs and companies that are working on, you know, this solution. And, and tech is borderless. And I think by being able to look globally, not only are we able to find some of the top minds in this space, but entry point is usually key. So when we look at something, you know, you can invest in a good company, but if your entry point into that investment is high, it makes it very difficult to get an alpha. So for us, being able to, you know, to look globally allows us to get a good entry point. And the third thing, which I think is probably the most important, is an alignment with the founder or founding team. So for us, because we operate this venture build model and we get actively involved, alignment with management is so important. And especially, I think, you know, entrepreneurship is, has been glamorized. In our experience, it's not, it hasn't been a hockey stick curve up. It's been a roller coaster. And you really need to find the right jockey or people that can handle and manage through that. We have this saying, like, sometimes you got to be able to stay in the game long enough to be able to win. And it's hard to find those entrepreneurs that really understand what their North Star is and have a strong why or conviction to get them through to fulfill kind of their vision. So when it comes to these companies, they're wanting to scale. What are the main issues that these companies are running into and how do you and your team at VST help these companies tackle these challenges? The entrepreneurial journey is littered with lots of challenges. You know, if I had to break it down into kind of three main issues, I would say the first we generally see is funding. You know, when businesses are, are, are at the point of scaling, sometimes what ends up happening is the founder has to basically pause to go and fundraise, which sometimes can take 
a lot of time. So in taking their foot off the pedal, given how quickly things emerge, having to go and fundraise to scale that growth sometimes can be a you know a big buzzkill in the business. So what we do is we help you know kind of solve that funding problem for some of our founders. So that's one of the core competency and skills that we kind of play in that in that business so that the founder can continue to keep their foot on the pedal. The second is finding talent. You know, I think as businesses scale and grow, getting experienced talent can be difficult. And it's even more difficult today with, you know, large companies, you know, increasing the salaries and poaching some of the best talent. You also see, you know, companies like Apple and Microsoft and Google, you know, locking up PhD students that are focused on artificial intelligence and, and such. So a lot of companies have an issue finding that talent to scale and grow. And for us, you know, we've got this internal pool and it's not just an internal pool here in Vancouver and Canada, but it's global given that we've got these relationships, you know, around the world and having access to really, really bright people all over. We also have the ability to not only identify those people, but to bring them, you know, to Canada, for example, or to the U.S., you know, through these different types of startup visa programs that we can sign off on. And so funding, I would say, is, is a big issue we generally see finding talent. And then the third I think is is managing growth. Early on, startups are very chaotic and it's okay that they're chaotic because they're trying to get that product market fit and and get to you know get to that flywheel, that growth. But you know, once you get to a certain point, in order to scale growth, a lot of it comes down to processes and managing that growth. And one of the things that we think is a big advantage for our ecosystem is we bring on a variety of advisors, you know, that have had tremendous success and experience that can come in and provide some guidance, best practices and processes, you know, for our portfolio company. And also like we've got 25 companies in the portfolio and they all talk to each other. So they're able to share best practices, customers, tech and talent. And so again, managing growth and can be a challenge for a lot of these startups, but we're able to kind of plug in that hole by bringing in some advisors that can help those founders. So again, just to you know, reiterate three things, three main issues we see, funding, finding talent, and managing that growth. And, you know, I've been to your office and I see all of these companies in motion, but to have that ecosystem in-house where you can provide that support on the spot is just so valuable. So, yeah, that's, that's incredible. The main industries of focus for your portfolio companies are AI, virtual reality, augmented reality, blockchain, and health technologies. Why are you focused on these sectors? And do you ever make exceptions for other companies that fall outside of these industries as well? Maybe maybe there's some industries that I haven't mentioned there. At Victory Square, we focus on disruptive tech, period. You know, there's this saying that I think people have heard me kind of say before, which is, is around this quote where I think it's Mike Maples, actually, who has an amazing podcast called Starting from Greatness. And he says, founders who live in the future, you know, have the best chance of winning big. You know, these are the types of founders that we are looking for. And we look to back, you know, being seated around the world, leveraging you know, new technologies to kind of reimagine every industry as we know it and kind of reimagining, you know, how things are going to look in five, six, seven years from now, you know, specifically around digital health. Also, you know, again, entrepreneurs that are solving pain points, looking at the way society is today. And then leveraging this new technology to solve pain points that may not have been solved for a long period of time. And we're seeing a lot of projects like that pop up in the Web3 space. And also just entrepreneurs that are rethinking, again, the customer experience. I mentioned digital health and you know food delivery and 
ride sharing and the Airbnb business model as an example. Our focus is disruptive tech period. We like to find these founders that are living in the future that are, are basically looking at technology uh, today and seeing how it can impact and, and solve pain points, rethink customer experience and improve our, our existing systems. And so the three areas that we're right now currently focused on, you know, Web3, so anything around NFTs, crypto, DAOs, play to earn, the creator economy, the metaverse, digital health, and then climate tech. This is kind of where we're planting our, our flag right now. You have all of this deal flow from all of these different countries, and that must have just been an immense amount of work and obviously relationship building. There must be something good about your personality, Chef. And I got to say, I, I attest to that. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that. But, you know, I think a lot of people may not know, and I think you kind of touched upon this in the intro, but, you know, these relationships and this, this flywheel goes back 20 plus years. You know, I think having started the dot-com boom, you know, I started the online dating space and not only seeing how technology was, was going to change the way we connected with people and then getting into that business, driving users, making it profitable, but we then started to buy, build and invest in businesses that we could take users from one site to another, which is this venture build model that we apply today. And also, you know, you've heard me say tech is borderless. I mean, with that initial project, we were able to scale and launch that globally. And what that allowed us to do is, again, establish relationships in all these markets that we were going into, which, you know, over the last 20 years has allowed us to build these really strong inroads in all those areas. And then, you know, I think the third thing is having been in technology space and in areas like, you know, online dating or online gaming, you see a lot of innovation first. You know, we've been fortunate to be early, you know, in Web 1, early in the mobile, you know, the growth of mobile and, you know, Web 2. And, you know, again, early in Web 3, we started to be exposed to Bitcoin and crypto and, you know, the underlying technology of blockchain in, you know, let's say 2012, because it was coming up in the businesses that we were, we were working on globally. And so I think, you know, a lot of the competitive advantages we have today, it's a byproduct of like 20 plus years of, of being in the game. It looks like it's the classic uh, 10 year overnight or 20 year overnight success. As early adopters in the crypto space and, uh, and you know, Web1, all of it, but specifically for the cryptocurrency space here, uh, Victory Square was, was able to help incubate the BTL group. It was the world's first publicly traded blockchain company. When you look back now, what was it that drew you to this specific company? I would look at this space first. I think with Web1, you know, we, we saw this democratization of access to information. And in Web 2, which, you know, I think started taking place around 2006 to even today, was the, the ability to kind of curate this information and connect people. You know, we saw the improvement of UI, UX. The customer journey was, was improved to, you know, enable it in e-commerce around the world. And then what we started to see around 2010, 2011, 2012, as, as Web2 had kind of, you know, started to really, really take effect was the need for internet digital native money or currency. And that's kind of one of the first things we saw Bitcoin add, you know, as people were spending more time online and connecting with people globally, there was no one currency for, you know, the, the web and, and, and Bitcoin and, and the, the initial ideology and concept behind it, you know, kind of came onto my radar as we started to see it used for a lot of transactions where you'd have a business operating in one jurisdiction and the staff and distributed globally and customers distributed globally. And instead of working in multiple different currencies, they were using one digital mm -hmm. native currency. And then what that also opened my eyes to was that this was impacting a lot of people that were unbanked. 
So again, you've heard me say growing up here in Vancouver and growing up here in Canada, we've been fortunate to have a, you know, a good banking system and access to credit and access to debt. And uh, whereas, you know, a lot of people don't realize in a lot of areas, specifically, let's say as an example, Africa, there are a lot of people that are unbanked. And we saw this internet digital money as, as, a, as a way to allow people to get into, you know, kind of get into the game. And so that was one thing that was very interesting kind of in, in the space. And I think the second was just timing. You know, when the financial crisis hit in 08, 09, we started to also look at it and look at the arguments around, you know, Bitcoin as a, a store of value and a possible, you know, hedge against inflation. And, you know, at the time it was interesting because, you know, it was almost the argument of a better medium of exchange than gold. You've heard people say the best way to think about Bitcoin is a, is a, is a digital gold. You know, gold is analog. Bitcoin is digital. It's right. far superior to gold as a store of value. And not only because it's, you know, appreciated 200% a year for the last 10 years, but because you can't flee your country with millions of dollars worth of <laughs> You know, it's, it's bulky. It's hard to divide. Yeah. Whereas with, you know, with Bitcoin, you can send it anywhere in a fraction of a second at a very low cost. And, you know, it's almost infinitely divisible. So like, I think because we were operating in areas like Venezuela or Argentina or in, in Africa, you know, we started to, to really understand the argument and the point of view from people that, you know, were, you know, speaking positively about it. So for us, you know, the sector and for all those reasons were, were one that we kept a very close eye on it. And then specifically with the company, you know, BTL was working on a project around remittance. Again, being able to send money from Canada or the UK back to Mexico or the Philippines or India. And so again, it tied into the, the idea of being able to send money faster, cheaper, in a significantly more efficient manner than what currently, you know, kind of existed there with the old antiquated, you know, kind of Western yeah. Union model yeah. of, of sending money. So, yeah, I think, you know, the, the space and sector and, and that specific company were kind of a byproduct of all those different types of things that were kind of going on. And so when it comes to all of these immersive technologies and, and, and innovative technologies, what are some of the most exciting developments that you see happening in the coming years? Say, let's, let's just use maybe metaverse or blockchain, for example. We're really excited about all of the innovation and opportunities in Web3, digital health and climate. And digital health specifically, again, I think, you know, we all want to live and we all want to have, you know, create wealth. But if your health is not good, all of that is, a, you know, is to no avail. And we've seen the innovations that can really advance improvements in, in health and not reactive healthcare, proactive healthcare, uh, which I think right. is so important. So we see some exciting things there with climate, again, not only in a must, but it's a massive economic opportunity as well. And I think that we've heard that saying that the world's first trillionaire will come from the climate tech area, which I completely believe in and buy into. And so those two sectors are significant. But you know, with respect to the Web3 movement, you know, I think we expect to invest a higher percentage of our time, knowledge and money in those projects, protocols and companies. And, and I think because we, we see the opportunity for asymmetrical returns and we see a big competitive advantage that we have in that area, given that we've been in the space for, you know, over a decade now. And the one thing I would make sure to point out is that it's still early, you know, it's still early stages of this era of the internet. But when I look back, you know, the majority of innovation in Web 1 and Web 2 came from, you know, the U.S. You know, there was tremendous wealth creation for both founders, employees, and investors. But tech is borderless and, you know, great is coming from, from everywhere. And one of the exciting things is that we've seen this new Web 3 movement is distributing this opportunity and wealth, you know, globally. More people can play and get into the game. Right. Uh, you know, strangers from around the world are getting together to mobilize around ideas and causes. And so... 
What's exciting about not just the technology behind NFTs or the idea or concept of a DAO or play to earn gaming, but to the earlier point, like it's so important to have a global perspective because we may not get or understand what's happening with play to earn in Asia, or we may not get what's happening with, you know, DAOs in Africa for that matter. But what we've always seen is every time there's some sort of new innovation, you know, entrepreneurs will come and play around with it to disrupt and solve pain points and create solutions for those pain points in their specific areas. And given that we've grown up in a different manner in North America, it may be hard to kind of connect with at first, but it's going to be significant. The other thing too is a lot of times when you see new technology pop around, there is a lot of people that you still don't know how it's going to evolve. So people are still playing around with things. And yeah, a lot of projects, you know, may fizzle and go to zero. But I think, you know, every time a new NFT project or DAO comes together and falls apart, and every time, you know, people jump into a seemingly worthless coin, the whole system evolves and it produces new tools and tricks that entrepreneurs mm. and policymakers can use in an attempt to kind of solve large problems, both, you know, kind of digital and physical. And again, like Web 1 in the mid 90s and you know, Web3 is still, it's still immature and, and it's not necessarily ready for mainstream. And then we believe there's going to be continued volatility and, you know, again, potential for a correction in the sector. But however, you know, I think out of the rubble, big winners will emerge. And we, and we can see this when we look back 20 years, you know, during the early dot-com era. Again, everything was a lot of dot-coms, not everything made sense. A lot of projects went to zero. But yeah. there were big winners that came yeah. out of that. And so our focus right now is to use our competitive advantage. So that's our first mover advantage, our data, our access, our customers, our talent, our partnerships, our funding, you know, to identify these projects that have the best chance of coming up. And again, remembering Web2, you know, emerged out of the rubble of the dot-com crash. And so we think right. that, the you know, for investors looking for asymmetrical returns, there are tremendous, tremendous opportunities in this area and space. Yeah. And just for our, our listeners too, how would you simply describe what Web3, because obviously it encompasses so many different things, but how would you, you know, simplify the explanation of what Web3 is? This on its own is how early it is. When we look at Web3, really look at two different types of things. One is, you know, this movement towards decentralization. So part of it is when you look at Web2, you know, you had these large platforms come about. Let's use Facebook and Instagram as a you know example, or Apple as an example, where they did some great things. They organized information. They made it easy to find people. There was a lot of good that they did. But as a byproduct, customers became the product, and customers had to give up their privacy and their data for the convenience of everything that was kind of offered. And so, one big thing we see in the Web three movement is this movement towards more of a decentralized system, which again, still technically has issues with it right now. There's still technical issues with it. But what it's doing then is it's basically allowing the consumer to get the same value, but they would have their privacy and they would own their own data. And then the ecosystem would operate in that, you know, you would be rewarded based on your engagement and participation within that network and, and ecosystem. And so that's one movement that we're seeing, you know, around the Web3 space, you know, with respect to scarcity and privacy and digital asset. Amazing, because I think it's one of the biggest issues in our society is the breach of privacy and then how that data is then manipulated. And it's honestly, in so many ways, it's it just divides our society in so many ways by the way that it outputs the information back to us. And, you know, it's it's amazing that how innovative human beings are and that we will, it gives you optimism for the future. 
that as these scary problems such as climate change and all of this, it gives you optimism that we will come up with solutions. Yeah. And, you know, when, when people are looking at Web3, there's obviously the decentralization side of it. But, you know, again, for us, one of the most exciting parts of the, the space for us is this, you know, this rapid experimentation of governance and incentive models. And where, you know, specifically, we've seen, you know, the coordination of large groups of strangers around a shared mission who are now pooling yeah. money and investing in things together. You know, this is pushing the boundary on how to structure and, you know, operate, you know, decentrally owned and governed group of real world businesses. I mean, they'll compete with VCs, use access to their community as potential customers, liquidity providers, and advocates, you know, kind of as a competitive edge. And I think this is, this ties to the, the idea of like, you know, a system that people can get into the game. So people all over the world can own assets. They can get banked. They can get access to credit. And so for us, that second component of, of the idea of just the coordination of a large group of strangers around a shared mission, pooling money and investing in things together. And just one side note too, when you look forward, and this kind of ties into the climate sustainability argument, for so long, you look at the public markets and you see these public companies and they're expected to continue to grow year over year. And one of the ways that they do that is by compromising quality, cutting costs, which creates you know labor issues, quality and product issues. You know, it's not necessarily the most sustainable and environmentally friendly, you know, role or math for this ever-ending pursuit for more and more and more and more and more money. Whereas, you know, this idea of people getting together, pooling their funds together, potentially either using those funds towards, a, you know, a really good cause, you know, specifically around climate or issues around diversity hiring. But the other is that in buying a business, you know, with a group of people that are, that are aligned, maybe the idea is to build a business make sure that they're, you know, environmentally, you know, sustainable, they have good governance practices. And maybe the idea is not to just make an endless supply of money. Maybe it's to make a reasonable amount of money without compromising all those other important factors, which I think for this new Gen Z are becoming more and more important. That's why I think we're so excited about the sector, especially long term, is that, you know, there's two really, really interesting kind of thought processes that are emerging that we're excited to kind of see where it goes. And so from the inception of VST back in 2015, you've obviously built an impactful ecosystem of companies. When you look back over the journey so far, what's been some of the more challenging aspects of building Victory Square Technologies? Yeah, man, we've had so many ups and downs. This entrepreneur, entrepreneurship shit, you know, ain't for the faint of heart. When I, when I look back, you know, to be completely honest, I don't think the most challenging parts of this were actually business related. You know, a lot of times I feel like with business, there's a problem and then you just have to figure out a, a rational or logical kind of solution. I found that, you know, some of the biggest challenges have really been around personal things that suffered, uh, you know, as a result. So, you know, kind of looking right. at broken friendships and, and stresses on family and, you know, health issues, yeah. I would say were, were some of the biggest challenges. And for me specifically, you see, as you go through business, Given the adversity and given the challenges and given the stress, you know, it's unfortunate when I look back, a lot of good friendships got strained, you know, I think just because it's hard to work with friends, right? And, and especially when you're going through challenging things and everyone's going kind of through, through their own things on their own. In the last, you know, I got married about 10 years ago, you know, had two amazing kids, amazing wife, but again, like raising a family and, you know, as an entrepreneur, like I'm, I'm so obsessed about work. And I think 
as a single person, it was so easy to, to go all in. But when you're trying to manage a relationship or a marriage or, or being a dad, and also at the same time, make time to eat well and, and exercise and sleep well. Yeah. Those were the hardest things that, to be honest with you, that I think I found with a lot of the business stuff, I feel you got a problem, you brainstorm a logical and rational solution, right? And you just keep going kind of down that path. It's the things that are not rational, logical, more emotional based, feel like have, have been the biggest challenges. That's so valid. And, and when it comes to family, I mean, there's nothing that tears on the emotion strings more than more than that. And I heard an interesting saying to your point about the health is that, you know, you spend all your health trying to get wealthy and then you spend all your wealth trying to get healthy after. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, finding that balance or harmony. I like the word harmony, you know, because when you're an extreme entrepreneur, every other aspect almost needs to be extreme just to kind of <laughs> balance or have harmony with that work ethic as well. So over over the last, you know, six or seven years, there's along with the challenges, there's also been a lot of highlights. What's been some of those moments that were like, holy shit, all of that hard work led to this moment now in a good way. <laughs> Can you walk me through one of those scenarios? There's probably three areas that kind of pop up, you know, one being the spinoff. So our model you know, we come in early into these companies and then we work with them for 12 to 48 months, nurturing, building, you know, getting through all the challenging parts until they're at a point where they're mature enough to kind of be spun off. And, you know, we've had Fans Unite, Game On, XR Immersive Tech and CQT all list in the last two years. And so to see these companies and these founders and these founding teams, like make it through three, four, five years of, of chaos, you know, to get to that milestone, I think has been been amazing to see. The other, I think, alongside that is just the team and the founders in all of those companies. We've you know, seen you know, Darius, who is the CEO of Fans Unite, or, or Sam Chandel, who, you know, who's gone on to launch his own first fund. Adrian and Jeff and Alex you know, on, on Immersive, you know, being recipients of top 30 under 30s. And then you know, I think that in 2021, we issued three common share dividends to Victory Square shareholders. And you know, we have a responsibility and accountability to our shareholders. And given that, you know, as a small cap stock, the market can sometimes be volatile in the short term. We obviously, you know, are, are long term in our, our vision with the company. And, and it takes time to get to the point where you can issue a dividend. You know, we needed 12 to 36, 48 months for these companies to be incubated. You know, you'd be in a position to be able to, to issue that dividend. But it was a big milestone because it was a reward and recognition for our shareholders, for their patience and, and something we hope to be consistent theme on an ongoing basis. So, Despite all the challenges over the last three years, I'd say like the three things that stick out. One, the spin-off of those companies to see, you know, see them branch off and excel. Two, just the team. You see the team being rewarded and recognized for all, you know, how awesome they are and everything they've done. And then for our shareholders to be able to, you know, issue them those three common share dividends last year, it was a big thing. I think last year it actually worked out to about 40 bucks for every thousand shares held. So as a small cap company, I think it's pretty much unheard of to be paying out dividends. So we were very proud and happy of that. Yeah, it's true. You, you don't see that very often. And, and speaking of the public venture capital space, as you know, you're a public company yourself, VST is. So just talking about the venture cap, public venture capital space in general, what's one thing that you'd like to see maybe change? Or if there was one thing that you would like to be perceived differently, maybe in the world of public venture capital, what would that be? One of the reasons why we decided to kind of take that leap is in 
Victory Square, we wanted to have a public company that investors, you know, in Europe, the US, Canada could invest in to get access to these next generation of, of tech giants or companies. Because most retail investors wouldn't have access, you know, to participate or identify these types of companies. And so we wanted to be public, you know, liquid, audited, transparent for investors to be able to get in early as opposed to having to wait till a company IPOs and has a you know multi-billion dollar valuation. And that's why we did that. I think if I had to, you know, maybe look at one thing to change, I feel like when you look at the ownership of equities, I think in the US, and this might have been pre-pandemic, but I think almost 20% of, of North Americans owned equities or owned stock. And to me, you know, when you look at the last 20, 30, 40 years, it's been one of those asset classes which has been the best way to create for wealth creation. And so I think this idea of being able to again, democratize access for, for retail to, to get involved, I feel like the one thing is to really reevaluate this accredited investor status because the way it currently stands, it's being almost there for rich people to get richer. And again, I don't know whether it's a component of education. So in order to be accredited, you don't have to make 250 grand a year. Maybe you take a quick course on investing in equity markets, but I just feel like the barrier to entry you know, for Investors is really important because it's an asset class that over time, you know, I think it should be accessible to more people. So, I mean, if there was one thing, I'd probably say, again, just looking at that to allow more people to get in the game, but like in an educated yeah. and safe manner. Exactly. And I couldn't agree more. And it's almost like the closest thing in, in this world of finance to get to the decentralized world of you know blockchain that we were just talking about and i go public ai we feel the same way and you know i think that there needs to be parameters so you can't blow your entire life savings whether that's 100 grand or 50 grand if you've been you know maybe you're not accredited but it's it's easy to get impulsive because you hear this one thing about a stock but you don't know actually really what's going on underneath the surface so yeah, to have, and, and like the crowdfunding and shell building process for these pre-IPO companies, it gives investors a chance to, you know, there's risk involved, but there's a maximum of, I think, $1,500, but you still get in at that pre-IPO level where you might double your value off the bat, you know, or more potentially. Of course, there's risks involved as well, but at least we're starting to see these changes. You know, you've been a leading advocate for philanthropy here in Canada. Where does your sense of responsibility to give back come from? And, and what does it mean to you to be able to create such impact through your volunteer work? Yeah, like I mentioned kind of earlier, I think, you know, my, my family and you know, our, our community, our smiley community, you know, we're so lucky to get, you know, refugee asylum in Canada in the 70s. Say we won the lottery. It gave my brother and sister and I, you know, the opportunity to grow up in a safe country with stable government, although based on all the trucking protests recently, <laughs> I don't know if everyone agrees with me there, but we got access to a great education. We had good healthcare. And I mentioned earlier, my brother, sister, and I were very lucky to have two loving parents who made sure that, again, we had a roof over our head, food on the table, and, and lots of love. And so, again, I feel like it's given how fortunate we were, it's our duty, it's our responsibility to kind of pay it forward. And for Victory Square, I think we've tended to focus around our efforts around vulnerable children and youth, you know, kind of specifically doing what we can to A, ensure that programs we work with like MealShare or KidSafe, for example, here in BC, that kids have access to a, a safe home and they have access to nutritious food and, and safety. Because I mean, those are so important in order to be even able to learn and, you know, and grow and do other things. So 
you know, for us, a lot of our efforts have been around working towards providing vulnerable children and youth, specifically not just here in British Columbia and Canada, but globally, you know, access to safe housing, uh, you know, loving home, nutritious food, access to health, and then obviously kind of education. And, and it's, it's our responsibility doing that because we were so lucky and blessed. Yeah, I, I really um, agree and share the same sentiment. I wouldn't have the opportunities I have today and wouldn't be sitting here hosting a podcast with you if it weren't for my family and my, my grandparents. And, you know, they really got me started in a, in a time where, you know, I really didn't deserve <laughs> in many ways the, the support that I got. <laughs> and I feel eternally um, grateful, almost like it is a responsibility and in a good way, a responsibility to kind of output that same love or generosity eventually, you know? Uh, yeah. And, and the gratitude that comes with it, I think, is one of the most key components to just general happiness for human beings. So you've mentioned a little bit about mentors as, as being your family, of course. Is there any other mentors that have played an important role to you in your career that you can speak on? You know, I don't like to have, you know, regrets, but this is probably one of the biggest regrets I personally have. I wish mm -hmm. I'd surrounded myself with more mentors one, mentors outside of my family, I think would have been really important for me. I think, in, and two, not just mentors in business, but I think in life as well. Like I mentioned earlier, I feel a lot of challenges I've gone through have not just even like the business side. It's been like the impact of the business on like, you know, family and personal and health. For me, I think if I could go back, I think I would, I would definitely spend more time creating more of a diverse group of mentors around me. And I think it is very important for a lot of young entrepreneurs out there because you know, two things. One, having people that have had experience really, really helps, you know, as you go through things, just to know that things can be better yeah. when you're going through challenging things. And, you know, I think that the, the second part to it as well, which I think is really important is in addition to having mentors, to be able to synthesize the importance of what they're saying. A lot of times people have mentors and they'll listen directly to what the mentors say, but sometimes that advice is not relevant. Like and I mentioned earlier, like, most of my mentors were my family. God bless them. But like some of their advice was, was really bad. It was like advice that was not relevant to me in my situation. It was, you know, towards a different time in a different country. But, you know, two things. One, I think it's important to have a diverse group of mentors around you early. Because again, people have been through things before, which will help through the entrepreneurial journey. And two, not just to have mentors, but to be able to synthesize what is important in what they're saying. Yeah. For sure. And so you've, you've won a lot of awards that I mentioned in the introduction that I wasn't even aware of before today. What does it mean to you? What does this recognition mean to you? Um, you know, they're team awards. Like we're you know, building a company is the ultimate team sport. And so I think for me, it's a recognition of the team. I've, I've been so fortunate, uh, you know, to have been surrounded by so many, you know, so many people, you know, including family. So not just the team in the business, but the team's family and, and my family, anyone that in an entrepreneurial environment, sorry, will realize that like wives or husbands of entrepreneurs are like the real MVPs because they have to deal with deal with us. So the recognition and awards are definitely nice because it's a validation, but I would say it's more of a validation for like the group as a whole. Again, we play in a team sport, not an individual one. And so like we've got a really, really tight and deep squad. That's great. I agree. That's, that's one of the best aspects. It doesn't feel like work when it feels like you're on a team and it does feel like a sports team. You're all putting in a shift. You've got each other's back. You're strategizing how to win. And it's so exciting. It's so much fun. Yeah. So if you were, uh, if you were to offer one piece of advice to a founder of an early stage company with a big vision for the future, what would that be? 
I hate giving advice because I feel like it's so subjective, like everyone's situation is different. But, you know, in my own experience, and just to the earlier question, I would say build a team that shares your vision. To me, it's all about team. And so I think as a founder, build a team that shares your vision, that has your back, like everything you just mentioned, the journey is not glamorous. It's, it's, It's rocky. So you really need a tight squad, qualified squad, loyal squad, honest squad, like by your side, because again, building a company, ultimate team sport. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know what, this has been so much fun, Chef. And just the last thing before we wrap up, if people want to follow your work or keep up with the projects you're involved with, maybe on the philanthropy side as well, where can they go to, uh, to follow you and find you on, online? Yeah, so best way to find me is on LinkedIn. It's under Shafin Diamond. I'm also on Twitter, again, under Shafin Diamond. You could email us at Victory Square or check us out at victorysquare.com. So companies that want us to take a look at them, philanthropic organizations that want us to take a look at them, investors that are interested in learning more about the company, uh, definitely check us out at victorysquare.com. Yeah, those are probably the best, uh, you know, best ways to, to connect with us. Thanks for listening today. It was great being able to spend some time talking with Shafin about Victory Square Technologies and all the great things Shafin and his team are up to. If you like what you heard today, make sure and subscribe so you never miss an episode.